This episode of The Yarn is sponsored by Epic Books for Kids. Epic is an ebook platform with over 25,000 titles. It's free to elementary teachers and school librarians. Colby and I both use Epic with students and are always impressed with the great books they have available. Colby talked to Nicole Deming, Senior Marketing Manager at Epic, about one you may have heard of. I'm going to have to start with everyone's favorite past, Ramona, and the book that finds her navigating the third grade, Ramona Quimby, age eight. Um, Ramona is someone with just such, she's got great energy, her keen sense of justice. I mean, she's just as complicated and funny and wonderful a heroine as they come. And I feel like Beverly Cleary really drops us all right into what it feels like to be a kid coping with challenges big and small. Epic, where contemporary titles and classics rub shoulders. Visit getepic.com to learn more and join. I like to think that Brian and I sort of upset all the stereotypes because he won the Caldecott with this short, fat book, and he's tall and thin, <laughs> and I'm short and stout, and I won the Newberry with this rather slender um, Good Master Sweet Ladies. Welcome to The Yarn, a School Library Journal production. I'm Travis Yonker. That voice you heard was Laura Amy Schlitz, talking about the year when the most famous awards in children's literature were turned upside down. The famous awards are the Newbery and Caldecott Medals. The Newbery is most often awarded to a children's novel. The Caldecott almost always goes to a slim picture book. But in 2008, it's almost like the roles were reversed. Laura Amy Schlitz's slender book of medieval monologues, Good Masters, Sweet Ladies, illustrated by Robert Byrd, won the Newbery Medal. And Brian Selznick's massive, uniquely illustrated novel, The Invention of Hugo Cabret, won the Caldecott. Both books were completely not the kind of books that typically win these awards. It's important to note that the criteria for the Newbery and Caldecott actually leave a lot open for interpretation. Lots of different kinds of books could win. They just usually don't. In 2008, we were reminded of the possibilities. This year marks the 10th anniversary of that remarkable format-busting year. So we talked to Laura Amy Schlitz and Brian Selznick about what it was like for them. Let's start at the beginning, before the books were published. Here's Brian Selznick talking about how Hugo Cabret went from a 98-page novella to something else entirely, with a little help from Maurice Sendak. Because when I first began writing the book, it was going to be a novella. I was picturing it at about 98, 99 pages. Um, and I was imagining that it would have one drawing, a chapter, and I, I had a sense that I wanted those drawings to do something uh, I- interesting in some fashion, but I had no idea what those drawings were going to do. One summer when I was in want of money, I applied for a school grant to write plays. I wrote a play for fourth grade about Socrates, and I wrote some plays for third grade, and then for fifth grade I wanted to write monologues. And I wrote these monologues about the lives of children in the Middle Ages so they would have something to perform. Thinking about where the wild things are, where you get to that wild rumpus, and suddenly there's no more text, and it's just the the drawings one after the other. And, um, And I just, at some point, made the connection that I could potentially try to fill this book with a series of wild rumpuses. 
this this uh, 95 page book suddenly turned into something that was almost 700 pages long <laughs> and so i called my editor tracy mack at scholastic somewhat hesitantly to say that i had this idea that was going to potentially profoundly change the nature of the book and uh to her credit uh, from the very beginning, the only thing she said to me was, make it longer. I didn't think this book would ever be published. I had a 11-inch high pile of papers that I'd been trying to get published for some time. And I I had decided that I hated publishing and um, all publishers. And so when people would say to me, you should try to get these published, I would say, nobody is going to publish these. Nobody goes into a bookstore and says, I want a book about the lives of medieval children told in the form of dramatic monologues. No, you want a dinosaur book for crying out loud. So I said, nobody's going to publish these. And I will prove to you that no one will publish these. And I went alphabetically through a book of publishers and I chose 11. And I sent 11 copies out. Alfred Knopf, Candlewick, Dial, Dutton, alphabetically. I got to about H. I think I stopped with Henry Holt. Yeah, and you know, and, and the entire the entire time I was working on it, I was very aware that there was a good chance nobody would be interested in reading it because it's a very unusual topic for a book for kids. It's about French silent movies, which is not something children here uh, are particularly interested in. I sent it out. I forgot about it. I got a rejection. I got another rejection. I got another rejection. I got another rejection. I sat down in my email one day and there was a letter from Mary Lee Donovan at Candwick Press saying she wanted to talk to me about publishing it. And I kicked off my shoes and cackled like a witch. And then I went and I ran up and down the length of the hall, swooping and leaping like Nijinsky. And the children were surprised because, of course, they have to listen to, we don't run in the hall, somebody could get hurt. But um, it, was, it was a bolt from the blue and a very welcome one. And I had to stop hating publishers. Seeing your book published is a thrill, but what's it like when that same book wins one of the most prestigious awards in children's literature? Brian and Laura Amy take us through that life-changing announcement. It was hard to not know the weekend that the announcement was being made. And so it's, it's a little bit of torture um, because you don't dream about something like that. Like you don't, you don't dare to want it, but you're very conscious of the fact that, that, that the Decisions are being made. The calls are going to be happening. I was sick. I had strep throat. And the day before, I had cleaned the entire house because I thought, I'm going to be disappointed tomorrow, and it's better to be disappointed if the house is nice. So I cleaned the house, and um, I had checked some blogs, and I think there was some blog that had you know, figured out what was going to win and... Probably, I think I was like number 47, so I did not expect to hear anything, but I still woke up really early in the morning, around four or something, and I couldn't go back to sleep because my stomach hurt so bad. And so, yeah, so the phone didn't ring, and so I, I wasn't surprised. You know, I, 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 I didn't expect to win, 
Um, and so when the phone didn't ring, uh, I, I finally allowed myself to go to sleep. I, I looked at the clock and I thought, okay, you're going to get up and you cannot go through the day being cross with the children because you didn't win the Newberry. A lot of people never win the Newberry and, um, and that's fine and you have a good life. And so I gave myself this bracing little talk and, uh, and I stayed in bed and the telephone rang. And of course, the second I fall asleep, fell asleep, the phone rang. And in what was essentially the middle of the night in, in California. And I leapt out of bed and uh, there they were. And I thought, if this is the wrong number, I am going to die. I'm going to die. Um, and I picked it up and, you know, they said they were calling from Philadelphia and it sounded like everybody in the room was my best friend. And then they said, Newberry Medal. And I'd been, I'd been hoping to get a fingernail onto an honor, you know, because some years there's like five honors. I thought it was possible. And when they said the medal, I was baffled. And then I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to give the speech. When I'm working, I tend to be a very insecure worker. Like after I've made something and it's finished, I'm not insecure about what I made, but I'm very insecure about what I am currently making. So my husband had listened to me for three years, you know, talk about how insecure I was and how I wasn't sure if people were going to like it. And, and so that was very ingrained into our conversation around Hugo. So after I told him, after I hung up and I was in tears and, you know, it, it was just overwhelming and I hung up and I told him what had just happened, um, the first thing he said to me is, now do you think people like the book? <laughs> and so I, I said, yes, I'm beginning to get the idea that people like the book. <laughs> For a number of years, it was tradition that the winners of the Newberry and Caldecott would appear on NBC's Today Show the following morning. It made for an exhilarating, if a bit chaotic, 24 hours. You know, you have to leave for the Today Show, uh, you know, pretty much immediately because they want you on the Today Show the next day. And I was in California, like I said. So the, the, the award had just been announced. I was able to talk to my editor and some people from Scholastic. I was able to call my mom, which was really great. Uh, and then I had to pack and get on a plane. So, you know, really nobody knew what had just happened to me. And, and so, you know, you're, you're, you're overwhelmed, you're dizzy. I sit down on the plane at what must have been like nine in the morning, maybe, by that point. And I, I'm sitting next to this woman who reaches into her, literally before we're off the tarmac, she reaches into her bag, pulls out something she's printed from her computer, and it says, uh, Caldecott and Newberry Awards announced. Oh. <laughs> with the list of all of the books, with my book at the top. And, and so, uh, you know, like, what would you do? Like, I could, of course I had to say something. So, so I leaned over, because I was just, I was shocked. And I said, I, I'm sorry, are you a, a librarian or a, a teacher? Uh, and she said, no, I'm a producer for uh, KPBS, the local uh, you know, PBS affiliate here in San Diego. And these big children's book awards were just announced. <laughs> and I said, I know, I won one of them. That was, that was 
kind of wonderfully strange. Um, and I feel, I feel bad for people who don't get to go be on television because winning an award like that feels like it needs punctuation. You should have to get onto a train and go to a different city. Um, the show itself is immaterial. You know, that, that was a, a quick thing, you know. Um, but I loved, I loved beating Brian in the green room. You know, and both of us were sort of punch drunk and staggering with joy. And then we, you know, we sat on the, you know, in the little chairs and, and answered questions. And I was very nervous and Laura said she was very nervous. But then as soon as the camera started rolling, she was like the coolest, calmest, most articulate person I'd ever encountered. And afterwards, I said, I said, Laura, how, how did, how did you, you said you were nervous beforehand, but you were so calm. And, and she said, oh, you know, I'm a librarian. I'm used to ha like talking about books in front of large groups of people. <laughs> so I was like, oh, of course, of course. So like I always just tried to take her cue and, and uh, act like it was perfectly normal to be, you know, doing what we were doing. Then I remember going out and just feeling like I wanted to bounce up and down in my chair because there was coffee and I hadn't disgraced myself on the air and I'd won the Newbery Medal. We'll be back with the second half of our episode after these words from our sponsor. This episode of The Yarn is sponsored by Epic Books for Kids. Remember how I said earlier that Epic is free for teachers and school librarians? Well, they're offering a deal for parents, too. I'll let Nicole Deming explain. We're running a special teacher-exclusive offer that educators can learn more about on their um, educator dashboard where educators um, can pass along an exclusive discount to families of $5.99 a month uh, for a limited time. And as I said, if you just, as an educator, if you're signed on to Epic and you go into your dashboard and look at the um, Epic Classroom Rewards section, you can learn more about how you can pass that deal along to uh, families. Epic, free for elementary teachers and school librarians, and a steal for parents. Head over to getepic.com to learn more and join. We're back. June 29, 2008. This was the date of the Newberry Caldecott Banquet, celebrating the invention of Hugo Cabret and Good Master's Sweet Ladies. In a ballroom in Anaheim, California, Brian Selznick and Laura Amy Schlitz would accept their awards and deliver a speech. It has since gone down as one of the most unforgettable nights in children's literature history. Because it turns out Laura Amy Schlitz and Brian Selznick still had a couple surprises up their sleeves. But one of the things that struck me over the several uh, uh, banquets that I was able to attend was that all of the illustrators just spoke. And I was like, but our job is to make pictures. And we, we show slideshows and PowerPoint presentations when we go to schools. Like it wouldn't, it generally wouldn't cross our minds to give a talk without images. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I have to, I have to illustrate my speech. Well, one thing I did was I learned my speech because I hate podiums. I'm short. And I think, you know, when a short person stands behind a podium, 
you know, you're kind of peering over a brick wall and you're not close to the audience. So I really wanted to know that speech by heart. And so I thought I should uh, illustrate my speech. And so I made a couple of phone calls to make sure that technically it would be possible to do this. And everybody was incredibly generous and said that they would make sure it could happen. I taped it and I listened to it in the car and I listened to it for you know, a couple of months because it had been drummed in my head that you were not supposed to change anything, uh, not even an and for a the. So I had a nine-page speech that had to be learned word for word. And I would practice it walking around my dining room table. I practiced it in the tub. Um, I was so, I, I knew I had to know it like my country tis a vie because I knew I'd be nervous and I didn't want to lose it that night. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that the audience always looks forward to is the question that you just asked me, which is, where were you when you got the call? Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, you know, and, and it was a pretty funny story, but I wasn't really that interested in telling the story as part of my speech. But then I realized that it might be really funny if I made a, 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 like a drawn sequence where Hugo gets the call that, that the book has won the Caldecott. And the night before, I suddenly woke up and thought, oh, my God, I haven't thought about gestures. So I got up at 3 in the morning and stood in front of the bathroom mirror and watched my hands and did the speech and promptly forgot whatever I wanted to do with my hands because my hands work by themselves. And so I basically uh, did a visual parody of uh, both the illustrated sequences in my book and the uh, cliche of where were you when you got the phone call. While Brian was planning to incorporate illustration when he stepped up to the podium that night, Laura Amy Schlitz was secretly planning to ditch the podium altogether. Well, the first thing I was worried about was the podium. Were we going to be able to get rid of the podium? Nobody knew whether we'd be able to get rid of the podium because nobody knew how big it was going to be. In fact, I was shown the podium and they said it's too big and, and, and we can't move it. And there was a little area in the front of the stage that was about 18 inches square and I said I will give my speech here. And the audience was very alive that night. There was so much excitement. So, I mean, the minute you walked in to the banquet that evening, people were having cocktails and the air was electric. It was a really good opening night audience. And then Brian spoke and he blew the roof off. And so I, I, I did this long illustrated sequence that I set to, uh, to music. And they were, I did, you know, God, I can't remember how many drawings it was, like 25, 20 drawings or so that started just like Hugo starts where you, you know, see Paris and you come in over Paris to the train station. You go through the train station into the walls of the train station and you see that Hugo is asleep, uh, except there's an old fashioned 1930s French telephone sitting next to his bed. And then he, uh, it's a close up of his eyes. And then uh, you see his eyes open up as if he's just heard the phone ring. And he picks up the phone. And then the next slide, uh, there was one photograph in the entire sequence. Everything else was drawn. And I got, I got Karen Breen to send me a photograph of herself uh, talking on the phone. And so I was able to make it uh, look like Karen Breen was calling Hugo to tell him that he 
one. And then I just kind of took it from there to, to figure out what what would happen next. So, you know, he'd go get Isabel and he would get on the plane at Charles de Gaulle and uh, Etienne, one of the other characters from the book, would be the pilot. And they would get to California to, you know, to the hotel where we were right now. And, um, you know, and then in the distance, uh, George Melies would show up on, on horseback, uh, being followed by children and animals. And Hugo and Isabel and Etienne would follow him. And they then freeze. And, the, and, and Melies on horseback, the children... Uh, faded into the exact image of the Caldecott medal. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, you know, I have to go after this and I don't know if what I have is good enough. You know, and, and I have to say in the back of my mind, I felt a little bad for Laura Amy Schlitz because I knew that I had, you know, that, that I was going first and, and, and I, you know, I had a feeling it was going to be pretty well received. And, and cause, you know, because I, I, I had so much fun doing it. Yeah. So I thought to myself, oh, boy, well, I hope, you know, Laura Amy Schlitz doesn't feel like, you know, I've stolen any of her thunder or that I've raised the bar too high. You know, I had my speech. I'd learned my speech. So um, I, I got up and I gave my speech. She very famously got up, walked to the front of the dais, didn't even go to the, to the podium, and delivered her entire speech from memory, which I don't think had ever been done in the history of the Caldecott Newberry Banquet. And everybody was floored. We just sat there in our seats with our jaws dropped. And again, there was such momentum and electricity in the air that the audience liked the speech. And I'd like to have that 15 minutes back again because it was so much fun. It was like riding a horse that's too big and a little too powerful and riding fast. It was good. Do you remember? much of the speech? Uh, no, I don't remember it at all now. That's it's crazy. gone. It's gone. Oh, that's fascinating. I could probably relearn it, Yeah. but um, there's no reason to. So, so by the time we walked off the dais, I think we were both like, well, that went pretty good. Uh, <laughs> it's been a decade since these groundbreaking awards. For Laura Amy Schlitz, some things have changed and some have remained the same. Things are the same in that sitting down in front of a piece of paper to write is exactly as difficult as it was before. It's not more difficult because I feel like expectations are higher because I don't think about expectations when I do that. And it's also not easier um, because no book teaches you how to write the next book. You have to learn to write each book individually. So that's the same. And I was very grateful that my children at school treated me like a celebrity for about a week and then it was like where's my book where are the tissues <laughs> you know I can't find my jacket um, so they they did not they, they thought that was great and they rejoiced and then I just went back to being their librarian and so that was that was the ways it stayed the same um, you know we're always asked how the Newberry changed our life and it's it's you have to come up with a sound bite but actually, answering that question 
there should be drinks and there should be at least an hour and a half. So the sound bite is I went to see the polar bears in Churchill, Manitoba. And uh, I looked into a bear's eye. The bear got up and looked through the bus window as close to me as you are. I could see the inside corners of his eyes where they were red. We looked at each other. I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't won the Newberry and if I hadn't had some confidence that I was going to make some money. Before we ended our interviews, we had to ask one last question. How did Hugo winning the Caldecott and Good Masters winning the Newberry change the landscape of children's literature? First up, Brian. Well, it is, it is nice to see how fluid uh, the category seemed to have become. And I think with the popularity of graphic novels and with uh, books that use images in unusual ways or tell stories in, uh, in unusual ways, it, it feels a little bit like something has definitely opened up a bit. I'm the wrong person to ask for that. I mean, I don't, you know, it's like asking one of the horses what the trend is for winning the Triple Crown. I mean, we're running around the track, you know. Anybody who's in the stand has a better picture of what that year means for larger things or doesn't mean for larger things. We know what it meant for us. We were running around the track. Thank you, Laura, Amy Schlitz, and Brian Selznick for the interviews. Thank you, Candlewick Press and Scholastic. Thank you, Mary Lee Donovan, Chris Paul, Tracy Miracle, Lizette Serrano, Charisse Meloto, Betsy Bird, Monica Edinger, and Stephen Barbara. Thank you to Epic for sponsoring this episode. Music for this episode by Pachyderm from the Free Music Archive. For links to all the speeches and videos from the 2008 Newberry Caldecott Banquet, visit The Yarn on the School Library Journal website. You can contact us via email at theyarnpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Travis Yonker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>